Sorry, Rod, this wasn't planned, but there's a Honda outside, <laughs> FLU578, your lights are still on. If you want to quietly slip out, FLU578, a Honda. A moment when everybody looks around to see who it is. <laughs> Ko Tamata Peak, Timonga. Ko Tuki Tuki, Te Awa. Ko Greenland Christian Centre, Toku Fata Katakia. Ko Pakiha, Toku Iwi. Ko Jonathan Dove, Toku Ingoa. Ko Robin Dove, Taku Ho Wahini. Ko Toby Rato, Ko Arwen, Ko Chase, Ko Elisha, Ko Giselle, Aku Tamariki, No Tamaki Makaru Aho, Norera, Tenakoto, Tenakoto, Tenatato, Katoa. So good to be here today, Summer Church. You know, I have been here once before, which was like at your six month anniversary, which is going back, what, 15 years? 15 years ago. And uh, it's amazing to see what God has done. Uh, already through Summer Church and what God continues to do through you. Absolutely amazing. Uh, I, um, as Brad said before, I have known um, Brad for, uh, since I was like 13 or 14, uh, down in Hawke's Bay, uh, which is um, home for me. He invested in my life uh, back when I was a teenager uh, and it really inspired me to do what I'm doing right now as, as a pastor as well. And as Brad said, we get together most months uh, to share some stories, encourage each other. So I hear a whole bunch of stories from Brad, from Brad about what's happening here at, at Summit. And he raves about you. He really does. It's like this twinkle in his eye as he's talking about uh, you. Uh, he really loves you. Um, you know, so I, I hear a whole bunch of what's going on. And, and I absolutely, um, and I hope you realize this, that there's something very special and unique about who you are as a church community. Um, just the serving ethos you have, uh, the sacrifices you make, your work in the community, uh, your love for Jesus, the creative edge you have, it, it's, it's unique, it's, it's something very special in terms of who you are as a church community. Also hope you realize how blessed you are with the pastor that you have. Uh, I mean, Brad is an amazing communicator, right? Uh, but not only that, but he, he embodies what he preaches, uh, he embodies your, your mission statement as a church, you know, to, to love God passionately, to love people purposely. You know, he embodies that. And I hope you realize just how, how blessed you are with him. He has this, this humility that goes, uh, underpins, you know, the, the first-rate abilities that he has. And um, I'm sure you encourage him a whole bunch, but pastors seem to leak a lot and always need a whole bunch of encouragement. Can we just appreciate Brad for a moment? Bit of pastoral bromance going on there, right? <laughs> hey, let's pray together as we open God's word. The Spirit of God, speak to us today. It's a lot happening in the lives of people here, often beneath the surface. And you know all about it. You know every single detail about our lives. The stories, the pain the uncertainties, the misunderstandings. You know that some are feeling that strongly today. You know that others will feel that in days and weeks to come. So together we lean in and desperately need to draw near to you today. Would you help us, prepare us 
for the challenges in the present and in the challenges that may come. In Jesus' name, amen. And everything around me reminds me that winter is coming. I catch the bus these days to and from Green Lane, and typically the spaces are really tight. The whole concept of personal space is, seems to be a concept that nobody knows of when you join a bus community. But this past week, the squeeze seemed to get even tighter as puffers and scarves and umbrellas were vying for those positions on the bus. Winter is coming. Our jerseys, singlets, and woolen socks are being pulled out of the back of the cupboards, aren't they? Ready uh, from the back of those drawers, umbrellas are being purchased. Winter is coming. The nights are becoming longer. Heaters are being pulled out of cupboards, dusted off, and already getting cranked up. Uh, people are getting wood supplies already. Winter is coming. Uh, we moved into a new home in Ellerslie this last spring, and there are these massive trees uh, just in the reserve next door that uh, we see from our, our lounge um, uh, that, that we live in. And um, I, I think they're amber trees. They're these deciduous trees. There's a picture of them here. And, and, and some of they look lush and green, but the leaves are falling and changing. And, and while this picture is, is absolutely stunning right now, I know that in a couple of weeks, these trees will look dead. Winter is coming. If you hadn't picked it, I have a strong dislike for winter. <laughs> you know, I don't know if there is this official phobia at all, but if there is, I have it, a winterobia or whatever it might be called. Winter is bleak. It's cold. It's dark. It's fruitless. It's more night than day. You look at a tree in winter and it's almost impossible to believe it will ever be thick with blossoms and abundant with leaf and, and laden with fruit ever again. You know, our personal lives have seasons too. Have you ever experienced this or thought about it? You know, one moment, it, it can feel like summertime, right? It, basking in a new job, a new relationship, health is fine, the kids seem happy. It's easy to worship and sing and celebrate in the summer times of life. But there's some low fronts that's in on our lives and, and leaves us in a season that's dark and heavy and cold and lonely. And, and most people I know of aren't, aren't really ready for these cold snaps of life. They don't know how to respond. It's like there is this fog that claws its way into whatever sunshine was there just, just moments before. But when the season of life turns bitter... It's natural to see only the situation right in front of you. That's how it was for Robin and myself the July winter of 2010. My wife Robin was pregnant at the time. Most couples we knew of really got excited about pregnancy. They would beam in the shops as they purchased baby accessories. They, they would show the, the, the plan of the baby room to everybody around them, take the camera into the scans for those prenatal snaps share them with the entire world. It, was, it wasn't our experience. Our pregnancy had never been easy for us for a whole lot of reasons, and without going into the details, let's just say we experienced a nasty and long winter storm in our lives. So we weren't too sure about setting up a baby room again. Buying baby accessories was done cautiously. Uh, every scan unsettled us. 
Uh, we sensed, too, that something was wrong with this pregnancy, the July winter of 2010. And we were really scared of losing this baby boy. Ever been there before? Scared? Lonely? Anxious? It's one of those moments, isn't it, when, when your mind starts to delve through the, the range of, of what-ifs. What if this pregnancy doesn't work out? Or what if she doesn't come back? What if they think I'm too old for this job? What if the test result is bleak? What if the season never changes? Often all you can see is the situation right in front of you and it's bleak and it's misty and it's bitterly cold and again that, that fog starts to claw its way through whatever sunshine was there right just moments before. These are situations that have winter written all over them. And that's how it was for the people in our story in the Bible we're looking at today in, in 2 Kings chapter 6. I'm going to have the verses up here on the screen to help us as we follow along. And the story begins this way. It's a good way, at least for the people of God. When the king of Aram was at war with Israel, he would confer with his officers and say, we'll mobilize our forces at such and such a place. But immediately, Elisha, the man of God, would warn the king of Israel, do not go near that place, for the Arameans are planning to mobilize their troops there. So the king of Israel would send word to the place indicated by the man of God. And time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he would be on the alert right there. So Israel and Aram, modern-day Syria, were at war. It's a frightening time to be at war, but all wars are like that, aren't they? And, and the king of Aram would, would gather his, his military chiefs together and they'd prepare some strategic move against the enemy, against Israel. And secrecy was obviously paramount. Syrians planned the, the strategies in the back corner, officers hidden from view. And, and they would come up with this ingenious plan and march to the site for some surprise attack. But, but each time they got there, Israel was always ready. And this happened more times than you could shake a stick at. Again and again, this occurred. The king of Aram obviously began to get suspicious. You would as well. We read that the king of Aram became very upset over this. He called his officers together and demanded, which of you is the traitor? Uh, who's been informing the king of Israel of my plans? There must be a spy in the camp. So someone must have, have, a, have a webcam uh, or some bug somewhere listening to what's going on, what we're intending to do. The officers reply, well, it's not us, my lord, the king. Elisha. The prophet in Israel tells the king of Israel, even the words you speak in the privacy of your bedroom. Israel doesn't have undercover spies in Aram's camp. They, they have something even, even greater, a bold-headed, wrinkled-up prophet. And this prophet is able to tell the king of Israel every word the king of Aram whispers, even in that most restricted of places, his bedroom. And all this without a single wiretap. The prophet's name is Elisha. Now, Elisha is not to be confused with Elijah, another one of the Hebrew prophets. Just a little pet peeve of mine, but I want to correct it. After all, Elijah, for some, uh, Elijah, for some unknown reason, seems to get more airtime than Elisha, but Elisha did like double the cool miracles that Elijah did. I just need to get that off my chest today. So how did Elisha know the plans of the enemy? Well, we're not told here, but from other parts of the Bible, we obviously know that, that God can see everything. God hears everything. So I guess he just let his prophet in on, on what's about to happen. And 
Elisha just passes it on to the Israelite king and the army, therefore is always prepared for the challenge. But when the king of Aram learns that it's Elisha who keeps thwarting his schemes, he becomes enraged. He sends soldiers to seize Elisha. It's a good strategy. Take out Israel's secret weapon and they're going to fold. The enemy comes under the cloak of darkness to surround Dothan, the city where Elisha is living. The story continues. Go and find out where he is, the king commanded, so I, I, uh, so I can send troops to seize him. The report came back. Elisha is at Dothan. So one night, the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city. When the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops and horses and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. I picture Elisha's servant waking up early that morning, removing the sleep from his eyes, heading heading out to the kitchen to grab some, some coffee. He's pouring out his coffee into the mug. He, he looks out the window and just drops his mug because all he can see is this vast army all around him. And what does the text say here? He describes it as a great army of many chariots and horses surrounding the city. Now, chariots were, were the battle tanks of old. So you can picture these, these battle tanks of old surrounding the city, the whole city. I mean, this is overkill, isn't it? All to, all to come and get one man. Really? They look mean, They're powerful. It's clear what's in their mind. So seized with absolute fear, Elisha's attendant runs to Elisha. Oh, what will we do now? What will we do now? What if those same words have been on your lips when all you see is the challenge, the bitter situation right in front of you? So what will we do now, my Lord? What will we do now? You walk through the the heartbreak of of family breakdown, perhaps crushed by by marital infidelity. You wait for your appointment at the oncology unit. You wade into the darkness of of deep depression. You're surrounded by bullying or uni or work. You finally get some ground to, to getting rid of the debt that you have and and you have this unexpected meeting with your boss at work and find out your job's finished. Your kid comes home from school with a note from the principal's office. Finally think you've found the one that you've been dreaming of your entire life and find out that person gets cold feet and a wandering eye and those dreams are suddenly shattered. Such moments you find yourself looking up to heaven, don't you? Shaking your head in just absolute uncertainty, praying like the attendant right here in the story. Oh God, what will we do now, my Lord? What will we do now? In those moments, it's natural, isn't it, just to, to lose courage because fear is paralyzing. It's, it's that moment when what you know about God and what you experience of God are, are separated on this, on this frozen continent. I call it a winter season of the soul. That what you believe and what you're experiencing seem poles apart. And what I've discovered as a pastor is that most of us seem to never be winter, uh, ready for these winter cold snaps. So when the snow storms come, as they always seem to do, we seem to still be in shorts and a t-shirt when life is bitterly cold. And we're unprepared. We don't have the wood stacked up. We, we don't have thermal jackets at the ready. We, and we try to carry on in this blatant defiance of a winter soul season. 
But winter sets in for every single one of us at some time. And it's uncomfortable, it's murky, internally you, you feel just wrung out. Nothing around you seems to make sense anymore. Feels like you're walking on, on just thin ice. You know, it's natural to lose courage in such moments. It's possible to lose faith in such moments. But, but thankfully, the story doesn't stop at this moment of fear. What I've experienced is that what happens from here on in the story has prepared me in those winter seasons of the soul when that blast sets in, when everything seems bleak and bitter. So let's look here in the story and, and continue with what Elisha sees and tells his servant. But don't be afraid, Elisha told him. Don't be afraid. Don't you hate it when somebody says that to you in those moments? You know, did you know this is the most common commandment throughout Scripture that God gives to people? More than anything else, God says to his people, do not fear, do not be afraid. He obviously knows that we need to hear this again and again and again. Don't be afraid. But why is there no need to fear? Well, Elisha continues here, verse 16. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Is the balding, wrinkling prophet delusional? Because the last time I checked, the entire cast of good guys in this situation consisted of one old man and his attendant. And they're encircled by this overpowering force bent on killing them. The odds are clearly stacked against them, right? But right after this puzzling statement, we read this. Then Elisha prayed, Our Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he, he saw the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. When you notice that Elisha doesn't pray that God will send down fire like Elijah did on Mount Carmel, and he doesn't pray that God will send a larger army to the rescue, he just prays that his attendant will see what God already has in place. In the very moment, God opens the attendant's eyes. How does the text put it? When he looked up, he saw the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. In other words, they're not alone. They never have been. They never will be alone. And these chariots haven't just arrived. You know, they've been there before. It's just the attendant couldn't see them. All he could see was the battle tanks of the enemy stationed all around him. See, already in this story, there's a question, isn't it? It starts to break the our icy perception. The question is this. Is it possible that we are blind but, but think we can actually see? Is it, is it possible that we don't see everything there actually is to see around us? Is it possible that some icy blast has, has kind of blinded us to the reality of, of God's presence right beside us? Before Elisha opened his attendant's eyes, his attendant could not see that there was a more powerful army of God already present. That the Syrian army also had no idea that there was this heavenly army that was surrounding them. It turns out that the people who think they can see might actually find they're blind to some greater reality. Funny, isn't it? Isn't it true that sometimes we think the only things that are real are things that we can see? And it seems to be that the more educated you are and the more Western you are, the more you rely on, on what's only visible. 
and increasingly dismiss what's not visible. So as a result, I wonder if we see only the test result in front of us. We see only that critical email. We see only that letter ceasing employment. We see only the negative in front of our bank balance. We see only the the empty seat beside us. But but, but we don't see the bigger reality. So you see all those moments, you know, at these very moments we are functional deists. Ideas believe that God is up there somewhere, but, but really a long way off, disinterested in our everyday lives. He isn't really present with us in any vital way. Uh, Jesus spoke about this blindness as one of the traits of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. He called them, remember, blind guides, blind leading the blind. But they thought they could see. But people who think they can see might find they're actually blind to a greater reality into the bigger picture. See, friends, it's natural to see only the problem. But when life turns bitter, you need to see what lies just over the horizon. The reason Elisha was not afraid, the reason he was not terrified is because Elisha could see what other people couldn't see. And this is actually quite true throughout his ministry. Elsewhere in uh, these stories, we read that the kings see this drought and there is a famine in the land. Elisha says, I know you don't see the clouds coming, but the water is going to flow. Prepare for it. Uh, Elisha sees a downpour when everyone else just sees a famine and and hardship. Another story, a woman is about to starve to death and he asks her, well, what do you have in the house? And she says, I've got a little bit of oil. And, And Elisha tells her to get as many jars as possible because the oil is about to flow. Elisha sees the provision of God in all situations. The woman sees only the drops of oil left in the jar. A woman in another story is wanting a child, and, and, and he tells her to get the room ready because he sees a baby coming within the next year. And when that baby boy later dies out in the fields, Elisha sees life when everyone could only see death, and the boy is resurrected. See, Elisha could see because the Spirit of God resided and rested on him. The Spirit of God rested on prophets like Elisha. But some of church, you, you do realize, don't you, that the Scripture tells us that God places His Spirit on all believers. Every single follower of Jesus has the same Spirit that Elisha had placed on him. It's God's presence, it's God's power, it's, it's God's ability surrounding us in any and every situation we face. Which means we too can respond like Elisha. But for that to happen, we need to have the eyes of faith to see that God is, is there. To, to see that there are more on our side than on theirs. Uh, to see that the enemy that opposes us, who, who could well be called great because he has significant influence and power, but, but the word of God says that the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. To see that you're not alone. You never have been. And you never will be. I love these words in the story. Don't be afraid. For there are more on our side than on theirs. Open his eyes so that he may see. Know that these aren't dead words from some distant past. Words that were once true but are no longer relevant to anybody today. No, 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 the reason God places these stories in his word for us to read today is God knows that we will face similar problems that we will see the enemy, we will face these bitterly cold situations. And friends, he wants us to truly see what lies just over the horizon. 
He wants you to grasp it. He wants you to see it. He wants you to remove the grit from your weary eyes and get some bigger perspective. Because when that winter storm comes and the mist descends and surrounds you, it's natural to just see that situation in front of you. But stories like this one infuse us with hope to see the bigger picture around us. That God's power is greater and just as real and just as present in your situation. And all the help that you need is right at your very disposal. In such moments, we need to cry out to God, God, I I want to see the help that is right at hand. Uh, God, I need to see you in this situation because all I can see is the situation right in front of me and I feel surrounded. I hear the criticisms, the constant reminders of all the ways I've blown it. I I see the test results. I I see the empty chair. I see that email, the past failures marching like, like foot soldiers all around any hope that would stir within me. And God, I'm afraid. God, I'm terrified. But Lord, would you open my eyes even today that I might see your presence and experience your power. Back to our story. So Elisha has opened his attendant's eyes to see the full picture, and and the attendant now opens them, and he sees heaven's army surrounding the enemy who was surrounding both him and the prophet. Of course, the Syrians don't see what they're up against, so they advance into the city to try to arrest Elisha. Now, at this point, you might expect, you know, this great battle between the Lord's armies and the the Syrian army, but that's not what happens here. We continue reading in verse 18. As Arimi and Arnie advanced toward them, Elisha prayed, O Lord, please make them blind. So the Lord struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Then Elisha went out and told them, you've come the wrong way. This isn't the right city. Follow me and I'll take you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to the city of Samaria. So when the Syrian army you know, advances, Elisha asked God to strike them with blindness. And apparently the, the supernatural blindness thing works, works both ways. So, you know, we might think that the blindness here is kind of a physical, not seen thing. But it's not actually the word for blindness. It's used a couple of times elsewhere in Hebrew scriptures, and and both times it has this idea of a a distortion of perception. It's more like, I guess, bewilderment or confusion. I think if it was physical blindness, the army would probably be like slashing and stabbing anything that was around them. But they had no idea of what was going on and where they were. Why Elisha is able to say to them, yeah, this isn't the right city. I mean, think about it. These are soldiers. that They know that there is only one city called Dotham. Uh, they know the valley. They know these hills well. Soldiers don't confuse a city. But God has struck them with a, with a distortion of perception. They're utterly confused and have no idea where they are. And these soldiers miss the very idea that the man helping them is the very man they're meant to be arresting. Because they don't see correctly. And Elisha marches them the 20 kilometers into the very city of Samaria, the the home to the king of Israel where all the Israelite army or most of the Israelite army are there, able to outnumber the Syrian army. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha prayed, O Lord, now open their eyes and let them see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they discovered they were in the middle of Samaria. And with their eyes wide open, the Syrians see they are trapped and surrounded themselves. Soldiers had chance to take Elisha captive earlier. Now they're captives themselves. This is Elisha's chance for revenge. But he doesn't take it. Then in verse 20, we read, When the king of Israel saw them, he shouted to Elisha, My father, should I kill them? Should I kill them? 
Of course not, Elisha replied. Do we kill prisoners of war? Now give them food and drink and send them home to their master. So the king made a great feast for them and, and then sent them home to their master. After that, the Arimian raiders stayed away from the land of Israel. So Elisha pulls out one more surprise, isn't he? He tells the king to roll out a feast for the enemies and send them away, back home. This is how you're to treat enemies. The king of Israel was, was thinking a bloodbath. Elisha thinks banquet. The upshot of all this mercy and hospitality, though, is there is now peace between these two countries. You know, at the beginning of the story, there was threat, there was conflict. At the end, the threat is entirely gone. And, and the situation that once paralyzed with, with fear is now completely reversed. And the reason Elisha has courage is because he could see what other people couldn't see. I think by now you've discovered that the whole focus running throughout the story is this idea of seeing. Just to recap, the king of Aram tells his men to go see Elisha. Verse 14, the soldiers come under cover of night, presumably so that Elisha, you know, can't see them coming. Verse 14. Uh, then in verse 17, Elisha prays that his attendants can see the army of God. That the Syrian soldiers are blinded in verse 18. Elisha prays that the enemy can see in verse 20. The story is all about seeing. Because God wants us to see our situation differently. I love the way author Stephen Furtick summed this up in his book on greater. He writes, it is not your situation that determines your courage. It's how you see your situation that determines your courage. I want this quote to kind of grab us today as the big idea of the story. Not your situation that determines your courage how you see your situation that determines your courage. It's natural to see the problem, natural to see just the enemy, the challenges. You know, the winter fog sits in around us, and, but when it does, you need the eyes of faith to see your situation differently. Because when you do, you can respond with courage and with faith. I was thinking earlier about the irony here in the attack. You know, the beginning of the story, Elisha, you know, we're told, can, can hear all the, all the scheming and the planning of, of the enemy. And, of course, the irony is that the king is sending his army to go and arrest Elisha. Of course, Elisha knew that they were coming. The, the cloak of night obviously wasn't going to do anything to, to hide them. But, but whether Elisha could see them or not, Elisha had no need to fear because he could still see the, the presence of God's armies, heaven's armies, angels' armies all around him. Now, at this point in the message, you might be asking, well, but what do I do if I can't see? I was thinking earlier about those magic posters that were all around. Remember years ago, you kind of get those books and have all these little dots on the page. You're meant to hold the book at a particular level, and, and then you kind of see this, this lion come, kind of coming out at you, or a tulip or a rainbow, and you, know, and you try to hold it close to your nose and, and move it back. And some people could always see it. I was one of those people that always seemed to miss out and kind of just pretend I could see that lion. Yeah. Yeah, that, that rainbow, I, I see it too. You know, but you know, remember those books? I wonder if it's one of those things. Perhaps you're surrounded by people who see that lion and the rainbow and the chiller, but all you can see is a whole bunch of dots, and it's frustrating when you can't see. Our eyes don't always see correctly, do they? I think this is actually one of our biggest problems. And it was true in the early church as well. It's, it's why when Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus, 
He writes down what he's praying for a group of these, these followers of Jesus and, and his desire that they would see, that they would discern and, and realize God's power, not in a physical sense, but with this, this deeper awareness. Scripture calls it the eyes of our heart. Listen to his prayer. Pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you would know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. The power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the age to come. Notice Paul's prayer for the church echoes the same prayer for Elisha. You know, he, he prays, Lord, would you open the eyes of these believers that they would know the power of God, your power that is accessible and available to them as ordinary, average, common believers. People like me, people like you. Paul's prayer is not that God would be more powerful because he already is. He doesn't even pray that, that we would have more power because apparently in Christ we already have all the power that we need to accomplish and deal with anything that we're facing in our lives. Any circumstance, any situation, every form of opposition we're going to encounter. And he prays that the eyes of their heart would see that power, the same power that he exerted in Christ for ourselves. Because Paul knows this is what will give us strength in our lives. Paul knows the truth, doesn't he? That it's possible for God to have all the power and yet for his people to be paralyzed by fear when all they see is the situation right in front of them. But God isn't short on power. Power belongs to God. He has it all. And if you can't see it today, pray that God would open your eyes in order to see the bigger picture. So just last week, we were all remembering the significant events of Easter. There's a scene in the garden when Jesus is arrested that reminds me a lot of the story of Elisha. Jesus, too, was surrounded by enemies who had come to arrest him, and, and he, too, had a servant who absolutely freaked out. His name was Peter. And when the enemies descended upon Jesus to arrest him, Peter drew the sword and began to, to wield it around, and, and Jesus told Peter to put the sword away. Remember what he said? Peter, don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us? And he would send them instantly. I mean, how could Jesus be thinking about that at his time of arrest? You see, Jesus saw what Peter couldn't see at the time. Jesus saw what Elisha had seen two and a half thousand years earlier. He knew that he had a, had a bigger plan, but he, he knew there was this whole army of protection. Peter, I don't lack the resources, but Peter, there's a bigger plan. Of course, the differences between these two stories is that Jesus refused the support of heaven's armies in order to take what each of us deserves, in order to do what was necessary to reconcile all things together. And the reason he could step into such a dark and bitter situation is because he could see what was necessary and see the bigger picture and what was necessary for us to be included in the family of God. But at this stage, his disciples didn't see that picture. Couldn't. Uh, all they could see was the immediate frosty situation in front of them, and they ran in fear. All they could see was a situation that made them grim and fearful. But the events of Easter, 
It changed their whole lens, didn't it? It changed their whole perspective. And from that point on, they went on to, to be men who would face prison and persecution and famine and even death with courage. Why? Well, the situation hadn't changed. But remember, it's not your situation that determines your courage. It's how you see your situation that determines your courage. So as you woke up this morning, perhaps all you could see was the size of the situation in front of you. It looked bleak. And you're paralyzed with fear. And you didn't see what the psalmist once saw when he said, just as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forever. And your readiness didn't focus on what the scripture tells us to be reality. In Psalm 91, he says, for he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. You will trample upon lions and cobras. You will crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. And perhaps all you could see was the situation right in front of you. But I hope that when you leave today, I hope you see that the full picture, the full reality of the army of heaven surrounding you, prayer will give you courage. So what did Robin and I do that July winter of 2010? When all we could see was the situation right in front of us and we were paralyzed with fear. But we reminded ourselves of God's presence. And, and, and we looked just over the horizon and we, we, we memorized and, and, and spoke out Psalm 127, verses like, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Uh, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And then together we read the story about Elisha and the servant. We clung to each other in the promise that God was present. And in our story, our situation led to the birth of a beautiful boy. Uh, here's his photo. He's now eight years old. Guess what his name is? Elisha. But we named him Elisha because we wanted to remind us that God has always been with us. That God is present right now and God will always be present with us. That we are surrounded by God's help. Uh, we named him Elisha to remind us that it's not your situation that determines your courage. It's how you see your situation that determines your courage. And some of church, right on your church name, you're reminded of a summit of a mountain. Uh, right on your name, you're reminded to look to, the, to look to the very top. Just like the psalmist here says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And, and there will be times, won't there, when the fog sets in and, and you can't see the summit. But church, never ever take your eyes off it. It's still there. hasn't gone anywhere. Just look in faith, even over the horizon, to see that God is fully present, fighting for you. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, would you open our eyes that we would see? 
There's some people here today who feel surrounded by situations that drive them to fear. Father, help them see that they are empowered by your Spirit, that your glory and your power are all around them and within them by your Spirit, and help them to step out in your mighty strength. Remove the the grit from their eyes so they can look just over the horizon and begin to see that they're not alone. They never have been. They never will be. Open their eyes, Jesus, that they would see. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. The band now is going to lead us in an item. Um, It's an opportunity for us just to sit and reflect and talk to Jesus even about the frosty conditions that you're facing right now. Then I'll come back and I'll lead us in another prayer.